0: Regards, and welcome to Ryan Rambles You to Rest, the sleep podcast where I amble about aimlessly conversing amongst myself with the interest of reaching a state of rest for you. In this episode, I thought that because at its time there shall be the hot season in the northern hemisphere of Earth, that it might delight and relax us both to ruminate reasonably on things which remind us of the summertime. We'll begin the updates with some leftovers from our most recent food-focused foray, which I will attempt to summerize in order to follow the immediate theme. Then I will rotate to a roundup of summertime activities that I think are the best. Before we begin, I would like to recommend that you subscribe to this show on your podcast platform of choice or YouTube. For news and announcements, follow us on Twitter and Instagram At Ryan Rambles Pod. Or follow me at Anvil One on Twitter. Our soundtrack is by Disparition. And now for some updates for listeners of this and previous episodes. In our last outing of updates, we examined exhaustively a handful of the many uses of cabbage. We talked mainly about the specific vegetable cabbage in broad terms, without diving too deeply into the many variations of the plant itself. Instead, our focus was on foods made with cabbage, There were several delicious dishes in the conversation, which I encourage you to visit or revisit. However, throughout that segment, I named a couple of Cabbage's compatriots with the promise of determining whether or not they were truly Brother Brassicas. They were Brussels sprouts and bok choy. The two geographically disparate delectables I am pleased to report are in fact related to cabbage or, I believe more correctly, are cabbages. This on Brussels sprouts from wikipedia.org. Although native to the Mediterranean region with other cabbage species, Brussels sprouts first appeared in northern Europe during the 5th century, later being cultivated in the 13th century near Brussels, Belgium, from which they derived their name. Its group name, Gemifera, or lowercase and italicized Gemifera as a variety name, means gemiferous, bud producing. Forerunners to modern Brussels sprouts were probably cultivated in ancient Rome. Uh, Note here that there is a citation needed for that claim, so maybe don't use that at a cocktail party you don't want to get called out at. Brussels sprouts as they are now known were grown possibly as early. As the 13th century in what is now Belgium. The first written reference dates to 1587. During the 16th century they enjoyed a popularity in the southern Netherlands that eventually spread throughout the cooler parts of northern Europe. Brussels sprouts are a cultivar group of the same species as broccoli, cabbage, collard greens, kale, and kohlrabi. Many cultivars are available. Some are purple in color such as Ruby Crunch or Red Bull. The purple varieties are hybrids between purple cabbage and regular green Brussels sprouts developed by a Dutch botanist in the 1940s, yielding a variety with some of the red cabbages, purple colors, and greater sweetness. In the 1990s, Dutch scientist Hans van Dorn identified the chemicals that make Brussels sprouts bitter. This enabled Dutch seed companies to crossbreed archived low-bitterness varieties with modern high-yield varieties, over time producing a significant increase in the popularity of the vegetable. I think this last piece is super interesting. In our last roundup on Ryan Rambles You to Rest, a sleep podcast, I talked about how I had a perception as a kid that Brussels sprouts were bad and or gross. This was based entirely on a reputation of them I had developed mostly from complete hearsay and probably some television. Based on what this article is telling us, it is possible that the higher yield low bitterness brussels sprouts developed after the 1990s are actually tastier to my and many other people's palates than the ones available when I was younger. And formed those opinions. I also find fascinating, as I will momentarily follow up, that it is simultaneously possible that my own perceived popularity of Brussels sprouts has a lot to do with living in the San Francisco Bay Area. While they are grown most in the Netherlands for export and also the UK for domestic consumption, in the neighborhood of 82,000 metric tons per year. We have the information about the United States. More from Wikipedia. Production of Brussels sprouts in the United States began in the 18th century when French settlers brought them to Louisiana. The first plantings in California's central coast began in the 1920s with significant production beginning in the 1940s. Currently, several thousand acres are planted in coastal areas of San Mateo, Santa Cruz, and Monterey counties of California, which offer an ideal combination of coastal fog and cool temperatures year round. The harvest season lasts from June through January. Most U.S. production is in California, with a smaller percentage of the crop grown in Skagit Valley, Washington, where cool springs, mild summers, and rich soil abounds, and to a lesser degree on Long Island, New York total U.S. production is around 32,000 tons, with a value of $27 million. So here, all this time, I've been living in the cradle of American Brussels sprouts production without knowing it. California is the source of a great deal of American produce, so it is an unsurprising fact. But that the crop is even grown very close to where I live must have some impact on my current point of view. Now let's bounce over briefly to the bok choy. I feel that I was somewhat harsh about bok choy in the last episode. I stated that it like broccoli, is hard to reconcile in a recipe where it is generally a very pronounced statement. I should certainly spend more time with it, perhaps cook with it. But in the meantime, let us learn more about this cabbage cousin from wikipedia.org. Bok choy which is American, Canadian, and Australian English Pak choi, which is British English or Pak choi, is a type of Chinese cabbage used as food While this may be a betrayal of my particular cabbage ignorance but I don't know of cabbages that are not used as food Perhaps if I were to click through to the full entry on Chinese cabbage in Wikipedia, that I would find about the other uses of cabbage that are not as food. Well, perhaps that is something for a further episode of the show where I may be able to discover for both of us alternative uses For cabbage. Chinensis varieties do not form heads and have great leaf blades with lighter bulbous bottoms instead, forming a cluster reminiscent of mustard greens. It has a flavor between spinach and water chestnuts, but is slightly sweeter with a mildly peppery undertone. The green leaves have a stronger flavor than the white bulb. And I think that that, it doesn't quite say it here, but in practice, I think you get the leaves tend to have more of the spinach quality. And then the bulbs tend to have more of that water chestnut quality. Chinesis varieties are popular in Southern China, East Asia, and Southeast Asia. Being winter hardy, they are increasingly grown in Northern Europe. And that is the sort of basic overview that we have here. And we'll look a little bit more deeply there's there's some other stuff in there that isn't that interesting we move on to what I think is somewhat more informative and I think our kind of exploration here which is looking at the spelling and naming variations here we go other than the ambiguous term chinese cabbage the most widely used name in north america for the chinensis variety is simply bok choy the cantonese for white vegetable or shui bok choy which is a small white vegetable and that is opposed to the Dai bok choy meaning big white vegetable and that refers to the larger napa cabbage it can also be spelled pak Choi, which we learned earlier was the uh, British English bok choy b-o-k-c-h-o-i and Pak choi, P-A-K-C-H-O-Y. In the UK and South Africa, the term Pak Choy is used. Less commonly, the descriptive English names, Chinese chard, Chinese mustard, celery mustard, and spoon cabbage are also employed. Well, I don't believe I've heard the term spoon-cabbage before It makes sense, I think, if you were to peel off the main part of a bok choy like you would celery, it has that sort of cup bottom to it that attaches, that's part of the bulb So, spoon-cabbage makes some sense that it resembles spoon although it does sort of beg the question is there a fork cabbage or a knife cabbage what is labeled bok choy may come in two forms white bok choy there's a Chinese character writing of it here that I you know don't know but it says that it is translates to milky white and the other is Shanghai bok choy which translates to Shanghai green. White bok choy is usually more expensive and has dark crinkly colored leaves and stem portions that are white and crisp texture that is more suitable to Cantonese style cooking stir-fries, and simple or raw preparations. Shanghai bok choy has greater availability in most American markets and has mild-tasting, spoon-shaped leaves that are lighter green with stems that are jade green instead of white. The texture of Shanghai bok choy is less crisp, and it gets slimy if overcooked. But otherwise can often be substituted for white bok choy. So this sounds like there has been an awful lot of formal confusion with regard to the varieties of cabbage between Asia and the West. I left one part out about how bok choy started out as a completely separate classification of plant and also a part which said that the Mandarin characters for white cabbage are also used for Napa cabbage. Now, I also found it interesting that there are two kinds of bok choy. I suppose I have always been dimly aware of this from shopping at my local produce markets which carry both, but I think that, to be completely fair, as I have talked about bok choy until now I was certainly thinking about the green version the Shanghai bok choy after reading all of this I feel like that I do truly owe bok choy a little bit more time on the palate and in the kitchen if I have the opportunity between Now and when we meet again, I will update you on whether my feelings about Bok Choy have changed. Before we switch gears, I will close out Bok Choy with the small section here on its history. A paragraph of information condensed into one sentence as follows. Bok choy evolved in China, where it has been cultivated since the 5th century AD. The only thing I think I can really add to that is that I believe that that makes it among the oldest known foods we have talked about on this show. I closed out last episode's roundup of Vegetables I Know with broccolini. I said that I prefer broccolini to broccoli and believe it to be the superior vegetable than the one I grew up with and today do not care very much for. I also mentioned at the time that I was under the impression that it was a relatively newly invented form of produce. Here now I will confirm the details from wikipedia.org. Broccolini or baby broccoli is a green vegetable similar to broccoli, but with smaller florets and longer thin stalks. It is a hybrid of broccoli and gai-lan, which is sometimes referred to as Chinese kale or Chinese broccoli, both cultivar groups of Brassica oleracea. The name broccolini is a registered trademark of man-packing. So there you go, right off the bat, without specificity, We can already see that broccolini is a recent enough development that there is a trademark on its name. Taken on its own, that just seems so bizarre to me. Let's look a bit more closely at the history. Broccolini was originally developed over eight years by the Sakata Seed Company of Yokohama, Japan. It was developed as a hybrid of broccoli and Chinese broccoli, rather than being genetically modified. Cicada partnered with Sanborn Incorporated in 1994 to begin growing the product commercially in Mexico under the name Aspiration, implying a similarity to asparagus due to the slim edible stem. After first becoming available in U.S. markets in 1996, in 1998, Cicada began a partnership with Mann Packing Company in Salinas, California, and marketed the product as broccolini. New forms of broccolini continue to be developed, including purple broccolini. Well, there we have it. Broccolini is less than 30 years old. It was also almost named after asparagus instead of broccoli. Aspiration sounds kind of odd, don't you think? It sounds to me more like a medication you see commercials for with gallivanting people in fields and dogs. I feel like its popularity would be far less likely if that name had stuck somehow. Instead of sounding like an antidepressant, we ended up with a fraudulently vague Italian moniker instead that, nonetheless, certainly sounds more appetizing. Okay, well that was a solid dive into some Veggie follow ups from our prior adventures. I feel as though I can safely assert that I have not done an exceptional job at giving these updates an especially summertime theme. So rather than dwell too dourly on this point, we should switch gears immediately to our promise proper of summertime sentiment. <laughs> Well now, since I succeeded so unspectacularly to date with the Roundup of Vegetables I Know, a saga documented thus far in Episodes 2, 3, and 6 of Ryan Rambles You to Rest, I thought I could try another topic for the Roundup, Favorite Summertime Activities. In the Roundup, I list lethargically and strictly from memory, without notes or preparation, items owing to our topic at hand. Now whereas the proper categorization of certain produce as vegetables has somewhat stymied our endeavors where the naming of vegetables has been concerned, I project that we should not face such challenges in the undertaking of the naming of my favorite summer activities. However, in the interest of accident avoision and embarrassment avoision, I shall list briefly the following non-summer activities to get them out of mind. Ice skating Skiing sledding, snowball fighting, snowman making, hot chocolate making, and drinking, winter or fall soup making, pumpkin carving, turkey pardoning, and jumping in leaf piles. Also, Curling, about which I previously provided a bonus episode of this podcast. Now then, where to begin? Because I don't want to forget it, and because I feel like it fills in the gaps... It is something that in some ways can hold a vacation or summertime together. I wanted to make sure to name reading as a favorite summer activity. It's definitely not the most exciting. In fact, it might even be the least exciting. But it's quite transcendent. It's something that you can do just about anywhere and is kind of a perfect way to kill or pass the time between all of the other activities you enjoy during the summer. It fits right in there I would count it among the best opportunities in general for reading but while on an airplane is a wonderful place to knock out a few chapters of the book you've been working on I remember one time I was so enraptured with a book that I read most of it during a cross-country flight I think it was a long six-hour flight east to west and it was coming home from vacation visiting family on the east coast during college and I had been working on a paper for one of my classes that that I think was science fiction focused and I had just picked up The Divine Invasion by Philip K Dick and that book if I remember correctly was a little bit of a slow starter and I began it at the beginning of the vacation but then it suddenly just clicked into gear and I finished the book on the plane i'm not sure how many pages it was but it was a real page turner for me at the time and i don't know if i was doing anything else on that flight but powering through the book but reading really stretches out the time or I guess it kind of condenses the time depending on how you look at it it's a real space-time type of question but you know if you're between meals or in a vehicle always in a vehicle not just airplanes there's trains buses cars boats The beach is a great place to bring a book. Every year with my partner we have a get-together with her side of the family that involves all of the immediate siblings and we get together somewhere in the country and usually get a large vacation rental with a pool that can accommodate almost 20 people and what's kind of fun about that is that usually the place is kind of a compound kind of a big spot and that means there's all kinds of little nooks and crannies that are nice for reclining with a book it's kind of cool actually when a place gets large enough there's more than one spot It's not just the hammock or the deck chair. There's all sorts of things and you have to look around and find the right place to read. If anything takes reading down a peg, it is that challenge of finding the time and place when it doesn't present itself so obviously. airplane is probably the easiest for that reason, but when you're on vacation with a family sometimes you're completely surrounded and it takes an effort to find the time and the spot to do it and maybe that even counts as being part of the activity itself of reading is finding both the time and the place to do it. And even if you're not on vacation, summertime is good for reading anyway. The days being longer means that if you want to go outside and the weather is nice enough, you can do it much later in the day. And I find that reading outdoors is one of the most pleasurable things to do. I even have a specific hat for reading outdoors that I acquired on one of our trips. It is the most solitary activity that you can do in the summer, but I think that's part of what makes it so important to bring up as I said it fills in the gaps it's a solitary practice it's sort of the perfect thing to do in between doing everything else and maybe that's just the place to leave it if you thought that reading was a bit too anti-summer then you may take umbrage with my second choice here which is going to the movies it's no secret that i'm a big movie fan but it may not be as well known that i generally don't enjoy stifling heat and i tend to perspire very easily. So for me having a quality and enjoyable escape from the heat is more important than having a plan of what to do in the heat. But everybody knows that the summer is a big time for movies. All of the big popcorn blockbusters come out in the summer The big summer hits are kind of a tradition at this point I remember what to me is kind of the first blockbuster and superhero movie of my lifetime that was a big deal was the first Tim Burton Batman movie And I remember that that movie was in theaters for months. And I think back then in general, movies lasted longer in the movie theater. Of course, I liked the movie a lot, but it was also a great and reliable break from the oppressive heat. And I think we went to see that movie many, many times. I don't have a count for it but it was a movie that was relatively universally liked at least by kids my age and so it made it an easy activity to choose whether it was just with me and my parents or spending time with my cousins that we could simply go and watch Batman I also remember speaking of seeing movies with my cousins I also remember that they came out to visit California and it was the summer that Terminator 2 was in theaters and that was another summer blockbuster if there ever was one if I remember correctly a group of us went to the movies and I went and watched T2 with my cousin and they were having a promotion at the movie theater where they were, I think, selling sunglasses to go with the movie which was kind of funny we ended up with matching sunglasses even though they were definitely not branded to the movie and weren't even the same style that Arnold wore But we didn't care. We were just kids enjoying the summer movies. More recently, I remember a couple of summers ago here in San Francisco, we had a very punishing heat wave and a few of us went to the movies and it was the first time that I could remember in a while really needing to retreat from the heat in San Francisco. Normally in San Francisco we have a regular amount of overcast during the summer season and escaping from the heat isn't such an essential ability. Most of us don't even have air conditioning, and most of the time that's okay, but for that very reason When it gets hot, you can find yourself with little recourse but to go to the movies. And this one day we were having a heat wave and just decided that was it. We were going to go downtown and we went to the Metreon movie theater and we stayed inside, I think, the whole day. I'm trying to remember what all we watched. I know for certain that two of the movies weren't new movies I know that one of the movies that we saw was a re-release of a Steven Spielberg film I think it may have been Close Encounters of the Third Kind and we watched that in the Dolby Theater and that was pretty spectacular and then we definitely watched another re-release in another theater it might have been Terminator 2 again another perfect summer movie but I can't recall for certain and then I'm relatively positive we watched another newer movie but It escapes me right now. Perhaps this is something I can come back to for another episode. But if you have a favorite summer blockbuster, or favorite movie theater that you like to go to to escape from the heat, let me know. It shouldn't come as any surprise that the first legitimately outdoor activity that I would want to name for a roundup of favorite summertime activities would be a cookout or a barbecue. a good cookout or a barbecue is pretty classic for summertime in fact for a lot of folks in America cookouts bookend the summertime and that's whether you begin with Memorial Day weekend or Independence Day on the 4th of July and most people would tend to agree that The three-day Labor Day weekend is the end of summertime and in each of those cases one of the best things you can do is get together with friends and family and bring a lot of food get the grill going and have a good time I think a cookout is always a fun thing or a barbecue Especially when you get a fun kind of potluck going where people bring a lot of different sides with them and everybody brings something fun to cook Since my partner and I are primarily vegetarian when we cook and eat at home a barbecue is an exciting opportunity for me personally to have a good dose of grillable meats. I'm also a, of course, big hot dog fan, and there's no cookout of any variety that is truly complete without a grip of hot dogs to have on the side. Of course, they're never the featured or primary food but hot dogs, they really fill in the gaps just like reading does on a vacation I like to get the natural casing boar's head hot dogs To me, they're the kind of next step up from the Nathan's hot dog I learned about them for the first time over a decade ago while I was at LaGuardia Airport. I was extending my stay in New York and had to try to figure out how to get my luggage back from a flight that I abandoned. And fortunately it was able to be sent back to me But I had to go to the airport to reclaim my luggage And while I was waiting for my luggage The two guys in the luggage office were talking about hot dogs And the one guy who was behind the counter Named the Boar's Head Natural Casing All Beef Hot Dogs And I, I made a note of it, I definitely had to give it a shot And then once I got home to California, I was able to try them out. And they really are the best. They're long and thin. That sort of bun-length hot dog. Similar to what you expect when you go to Nathan's. But they are so juicy and so tasty that you don't need to concern yourself with condiments to me they're just perfect on their own I'll eat them with just a a bun and the hot dog now it is also crucial to a good hot dog that the bun is lightly toasted I would almost go so far as to say kissed by the flame you want it to be just a little bit crunchy but still soft on top it seems like it should be simple but I would say that if there's anything that's the easiest thing to mess up when it comes to the grilling side at least of dealing with hot dogs it's getting that bun right the other part of a good barbecue, whether or not you're eating meat is the part where you're hanging out by the grill or the fire pit or wherever you're cooking. Where you're either on deck or currently cooking, but you're hanging out, having a beer or a soda with your friends. Ideally, it's sunny out. But it's one of those kind of perfect moments where there's nothing else to really focus on other than being together and cooking the food. And usually, you're with a few people, ideally, that are some of the best people in your life. At the heart of it, I think this is why it's probably my favorite summer activity that actually happens outdoors It almost always means you're surrounded by friends and family and people you care about and you're eating good food And that's really the other upside of the cookout is that Oftentimes, it's about having really good food that everybody likes. When it's a kind of potluck or barbecue, folks bring the foods they like to eat the most or the foods that they feel most confident in sharing with friends and family. And usually that means people bringing at least to their own point of view, what their their best shareable food is. And it's always nice to be with a group of friends and family that are all bringing together not just the main grillable things, but all of the sides, all of the dips and salads, all the varieties of chips and beer and soda. It's even almost more fun if none of it really fits together It's all different cultures and different backgrounds and It's all just tasty food, there isn't one theme Yes, I would say that a perfect summer is a summer that has a good number of cookouts So, what's your favorite food to eat or bring to a cookout? Let me know. My next favorite summer activity is a bit of a catch-all and it definitely can be inclusive of a large variety of other summer activities including the barbecue and the reading that we've already talked about but one thing it certainly does not include is going to the movies and this one is camping camping is sort of the ultimate outdoor activity because you place yourself outside and you don't really have an inside other than your tent but even your tent is kind of outside it's open air it's a shelter but it doesn't feel like going inside and I think for most people doesn't include air conditioning I know there are a lot of people who travel and use RVs or campers and that's something that I can't totally speak to although I feel like I have a little bit of angle on that because even though we don't do the RV thing we're definitely the more glamping type and so we're definitely not strangers to creature comforts when it comes to camping it's a thing that's become popular at least to me over the last maybe four years or so is the glamping experience of having like a tent cabin that has a bed in it and maybe has heating and maybe has a bathroom and that is its own kind of camping experience and I think it's pretty nice because if you don't want to be in a hotel or just want to be outside it satisfies the feeling and need to be outside there are a couple of places that we've found that we've gone back to a couple of times both in and outside of California and It's kind of an addicting experience in that the upside to the tent cabin thing is that you do pack lighter and you definitely have fewer concerns or worries than you would at a regular campsite, but it's not that far off. Now, one of the reasons that I have come to love camping is that living in Northern California, we have all up and down the coast, redwood forests. And many of these state and national parks that have them have pretty good campgrounds. In some of the cases, your campsite might have you at the foot of a series of large redwood trees. And redwood trees are truly magical. A nice redwood forest or redwood grove is kind of not like anything else to me. In recent years I've really come to love visiting them because they don't cease to impress me with their beauty they're so big it's sort of like how I've just been continuously an urban dweller I'm definitely a city mouse and one of the things i've always loved about big cities is the bigness the skyscrapers the tall buildings the bustling traffic and all of the people and the the majesty to me is how big it is and in a way the redwood grove carries some of that majesty in the wilderness form because the redwood trees are gigantic they can be thousands of years old and hundreds of feet tall and 15-20 feet around they're skyscrapers in their own right I've been trying to do my best when we go to these places to learn as much as I can about the redwood trees and I feel like I'm doing a decent job of retaining a little bit more information with each redwood forest visit every campground or redwood forest has a visitor center and usually there's a wealth of information there to process whether it's pamphlets or exhibits or even along the trails just plaques and information recently we've done two back-to-back trips to a state park near Santa Cruz, California one camping trip and then another one where we took family just for a day or an afternoon walk through the redwoods and at that particular park which is Henry Cowell near Santa Cruz they actually have a pretty nicely designed visitor center with quite a few well-designed factual exhibits about the ecosystems and the history of the environment and i just think these redwoods are super fascinating with regard to the history the sort of sadder part of it is is that if you want to see the big old growth redwoods the kind of giant trees you think about when you think of um, for example Return of the Jedi then you definitely have to do some hunting because a lot of the biggest and most beautiful redwood trees that ever existed were destroyed by logging and industrialization 100-150 years ago a lot of the old growth redwoods which are the big ones that are thousands of years old which you can find along the coast of northern california are small tiny patches of redwood groves that were often not logged because either a they were very very inconvenient to get logging operations out to or because they were owned by extremely wealthy people and oftentimes those extremely wealthy people were in the logging business and they had just chosen to save a small part of it for themselves well you know a hundred 150 years go by and those people are no longer with us but their trees are and thankfully some of those trees have survived when it comes to survival one of the things that's super interesting about the redwoods is that they are borderline indestructible If it wasn't for human logging efforts, most redwood trees would survive for thousands of years. The biological elements that make the bark red in redwood trees is also naturally deterrent to insects and is partially fire retardant. In fact, of all the types of trees that there are, redwoods are among the few that tend to survive, if not thrive, after a forest fire. So, when you go to an old growth redwood forest, you'll find that many, if not all of them, have some fire damage because they've been around so long, they've been in sometimes multiple forest fires and they survive the redwoods survive the fires and continue to grow it's kind of funny but what ultimately kills them most of the time is the wind after they've gotten so big they become more and more vulnerable to intense wind pressure and they generally don't have very deep root systems their root systems go I think you know six to ten or twelve feet below the ground but they spread out they can go hundreds of feet in every direction around the tree and usually the result of that in these groves is that the redwood trees sort of hold each other up they share their root systems to keep each other standing another element to the life and existence of these trees that I think is interesting is their reproductive system now the redwood trees do generate pine cones and seeds but it is not their primary method of reproduction, in part because the forest floor, in the deeper forests in particular, is covered with a thick bed of detritus, of fallen leaves and other plant life that can be multiple feet thick so that a redwood seed can rarely even find its way to the floor and if it does it's got quite a lot of competition to grow in an environment that is dominated by these again ancient trees or even if they're not ancient even the younger ones can be competitive so interestingly there are two other more common methods of redwood procreation one is that new trees can grow directly out of the root system of the existing redwoods so sometimes you'll have a tree in one spot and then you'll have you know a few meters away the offspring of that tree growing up just straight out of the root system and then the third way is that as they grow the redwoods generate these burls inside of their trunks that are that can sprout new trees so it's not uncommon in the old-growth forests to have places where an ancient tree was chopped down and then in its place there might be five or six new trees growing up that are actually basically clones of the original tree and sometimes you'll see this compounded with other elements of how they survive so you might see For example, at the Henry Cowell Park, you'll see there's one tree that the inside of it was mostly burnt out by a forest fire, but it survived. And then these burls uh, generated new tree growth and from different parts of the tree from where it was burnt out in the center and then they sort of fuse back together towards the top It's hard to describe and probably a little bit difficult to imagine, but it's a wild phenomenon to see how redwood trees grow out of each other and persevere despite all of these things that can go wrong. And then of course, another good element to the ecosystem for them is that while they will survive longer than everything else in the forest when they finally do die and fall over they're so massive that they have all of this nutrients and mass to give back to the forest and you'll see felled redwood trees with all kinds of new trees growing out of them and they'll become the home of animals and insects and mushrooms and just bring all of this new potent fresh life back to the forests where they've fallen and they really are spectacularly big and uh, they grow fast you know there's if you go to a young redwood forest that is post logging you'll still find these trees that are hundreds and hundreds of feet tall and many 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 feet around they're just not ancient and it's so impressive how well they've sprung back it is tragic that we can't see giant redwood groves everywhere But it is very amazing that these young growth forests can provide a still just as beautiful experience coming back from what was done in the past. So that was a bit of a digression, a bit of a ramble off of the primary topic that is camping and I do want to touch on a few more points of camping before definitely having to move on I've always been a little bit of a gear fanatic I went to film school and loved all of the gear that came with film I've done professional work in photography and I love all of the equipment that comes with that and camping is absolutely no exception in fact it's probably the most gear forward fun you can have one of my favorite things that my partner and I like to do after going camping is to stop by a camping store like an REI on the way home from camping and while the experience is still fresh in our memory go through there and pick up some new items that we realized would have been really nice to have while we're out in the woods. I love it. Everything that has to be collapsible stowable all of the needs that you have being able to provide yourself with the ability to cook food and we're not very rustic types you know we have gas burners and such I love the challenge of providing light I think that something that can be nice at a campsite is aesthetic care to camp lighting so i've recently gotten into trying to figure out how to easily provide and ideally not obnoxiously provide string lights to a campsite and then the other lighting challenge that i haven't really been able to successfully or easily overcome is finding just the right kind of lighting for the table at the campsite. For us, the table tends to need to be dual purpose as a social location for playing games or eating but it's also sort of the main kitchen counter. It's really difficult to find lighting fixtures or devices that provide the right quality of light, especially for the camp table. So if you happen to know a good lighting solution for camping, and especially for use around the table that gives a good soft spread let me know there are so many great things about camping but before we move on I want to get just a couple more things and we were just talking about lack of light but The other two things that are important to me are also related to light. And the first thing which I think probably comes to mind for everyone is the classic campfire. You really can't call it camping without a campfire. Camping without a campfire almost seems like it's only half of camping We recently went camping and the campsite, the person who sold wood to campers had left for the day when we got there and We were definitely not about to camp without a campfire. The person at the gate told us that we would have to go outside of the campground and buy wood at a grocery store. And in this case, we were camping near civilization, so to speak, so that it wasn't a major inconvenience to have to go into town to get wood in fact we were staying close to a few towns and on our second night after a long hike we went to one grocery store and they were sold out of wood and we had to go to another neighboring town to get wood in those circumstances it's not that big of a deal to have to go and travel for your supplies But it's definitely a personal pet peeve of mine when a campsite doesn't have a good camp store or good infrastructure for providing things like wood. I'm realizing that I am digressing here from the light related final couple of things But I definitely need to touch upon the essential coolness of the camp store. It goes hand in hand with how I feel about camping gear. There's, you know, emergency equipment. There's some food if you're desperate. some essential supplies like wood or gas or water but there's also fun things like games or foods that you don't need to survive but are fun like ice cream one of my favorite things that we've gotten from a camp store in the last uh, couple of years was a National Parks edition of Trivial Pursuit and it comes in a wooden, not wooden, but a plastic wood themed container that's held closed by a carabiner and it just holds a pretty thick deck of National Parks related trivia cards and just like any Trivial Pursuit game it has five or six different categories per card but what's different is that its rules are set up that you don't need a board you just collect the cards that you get right and then you play to a certain number of collected cards and then all of the categories have a different bent that's still twists it into national parks trivia and it's super fun it can go for hours if you want i don't think we've gotten through our entire set and we've taken it camping a few times and even to a family gathering the only criticism i would say i have for national parks trivial pursuit might be that there's a bit of an imbalance in the difficulty of the questions. You'll definitely just luck into one category being harder than the other. You roll a die to see which one you get, but sometimes the questions are super easy and other times they require some level of absolutely ridiculous esoteric knowledge about national parks or nature or history but it's still a great camping game because it's so compact and easy to use and doesn't require very much we love being able to play games and playing games with friends while camping is super fun but most games in general aren't very outdoor friendly so it's nice to have a few good ones in your back pocket when you go camping and sometimes a card-based game is the way to go so walking backwards mentally from Trivial Pursuit through the camping store and back to the campfire. The campfire is essential. It provides the possibility of the iconic camping snack s'mores. S'mores which I am not a big fan of, but I definitely would not fault anybody for loving it or if not loving it, appreciating its importance in the camping experience, which I do In general, I'm not a big sweets person, so s'mores don't quite hit it for me and I haven't been the equivalent fan of cooking a hot dog on a stick, even though I love hot dogs or um, the pie iron type of chef. And we've tried doing pie irons. I would say that we've been diplomatic with pie irons. We've given them a shot. Their fair due, if you will. But I would say that our success level with having enjoyable even as a snack or silly food food from the pie irons has not been very successful if you aren't familiar the pie iron is basically a cast iron square of metal with two clamshell sides that you can put pieces of bread in and whatever filling you want and those sandwich closed and then have a long handle so that they can be held over a fire or placed in a fire it's an interesting idea but i think it's just like s'mores a bit of a fun thing to do and not the kind of thing that you would want to rely upon for a meal like you don't really want to depend on your food that comes from your pie iron for dinner but if you dear listener are an expert with a pie iron and have some advice for me about the best way to use a pie iron then I would love to hear about it because I would say that we have not given up on the pie iron but we definitely need some convincing I don't think that you need to be a very serious pyromaniac to enjoy a campfire and all of its beauty but it doesn't hurt two of my best friends are definitely lovers of a campfire and even though I myself am not a big pyromaniac, I was much more as a kid. I would I would definitely be glued to the fire as a kid. Less so now, but watching the two of them during a recent camping trip bond over the fire, over burning the ends of sticks and whatever other things they could get their hands on was kind of wonderful so a campfire that you appreciate as much as someone else with you appreciates having a campfire buddy, that's got to be up there that's a great thing to have I've become more of a sit-back-and-enjoy-the-fire type of person and if I'm honest, I've gotten kind of frustrated with the the smoking-out-of-the-clothing experience of just being more or less coated in a layer of smoky smell it's kind of a nuisance, but I don't think you can trade it I don't think that the alternative is good you know you take the the full-on smoke out for all of the joy and pleasure that the campfire brings it's a social communal space too if you're able to camp with friends and family just like you would have friends and family for a barbecue having a group of people that you love and care about gathered around a fire that's pretty tops and there isn't a as strong of an equivalent anywhere else we talked about how the grill kind of gets there during a cookout but the campfire is got to be the ultimate because it it can also be the grill but it's the, the warmth and the place that everyone gathers around so this last light related thing to camping is kind of the antithesis of the other things I've already talked about like the string lights the flashlights the campfire and it's an activity which can be enjoyed solitary like reading or with a group but one of the things that I absolutely love is stargazing and to be able to truly enjoy some stargazing you need to get away from the campfire sometimes it's the thing that you can do once it's time to let the campfire go like it's time to let the campfire burn down and there's no bright flame anymore and you're down to coals or else it's something that you can do as kind of a night walk you can walk around the campgrounds or maybe you have a trail that is nearby that is good for nighttime or if you're lucky maybe you are staying at a campground with a astronomy program and there's folks with telescopes that can show you things that you won't be able to see with the naked eye but really even without the instrumentation the sky at night it can be beautiful hopefully you can camp far enough away from a city to see stars and galaxies and planets the perfect situation will be that the moon isn't in the sky to drown out the view of everything else but I just think the night sky is something so magical and sometimes all you need is a comfortable camping chair to appreciate it after the fire has died down But I would even recommend that if you can find the opportunity to camp somewhere that has a program, even if it's just an amateur program, it's worth it. We've gone to one campsite that had an amateur program south of the Bay Area and there were campsites located near an observatory and you could go up to the observatory and enjoy the stars there before going back to your campsite and I recall on that night it was just so much fun that the observatory had a very large uh, permanent telescope that we were able to look at Jupiter through and, and see oh, many moons of Jupiter uh, we, were, we got to see the International Space Station Which, you know, you can't see through a telescope because it's too fast But you can see it in the sky when it passes over And we got to have a closer look at other planets and stars During a road trip a few years ago It wasn't technically camping because we stayed in a cabin But we went to the north rim of the Grand Canyon and they had an astronomy week and they had a whole group of telescopes on the back patio of the North Rim Lodge and the North Rim there is a designated black sky site and it was just breathtaking what you could see and they had pretty large telescopes so you could um, see some things that were so far away you could barely imagine they existed nebulae and other galaxies it was a big week too because Jupiter was closer to Earth than it had been in a very long time and everybody wanted to look at Jupiter up close My favorite part of that story to tell, though, is that I had um, walked from our cabin through the lodge and out to the back patio, and they were loaning out flashlights with a red filter on them. Which, by the way, if you plan on going somewhere to stargaze, make sure to bring a flashlight with a red filter it's better for everyone involved for your eyes they don't hurt your eyes when you shine a red light around and it makes it so that you can see things better but i i got a loner flashlight and then i walked out onto the back patio of the lodge and i looked up at the sky and my first reaction was disappointment because it was a cloudy night and in stargazing the the worst thing that can really happen is weather getting in the way but it took maybe you know five seconds, not very long, but long enough to be a little bit embarrassed for me to realize that it was a completely clear night and there were no clouds in the sky and what I was looking at was the band of the Milky Way galaxy across the sky And what looked like clouds was in fact billions of stars. Stargazing is just a profound and wonderful activity. And it doesn't have to be only while camping, but I think camping is one of the best places to do it because you're already... Predisposed to feeling a part of nature, and it's easy to forget that extraterrestrial everything is also part of, you know, cosmic nature. It's not just being in tune with the planet that we live on, but having a kind of relationship with. What is even beyond that, what is beyond our planet and the vastness, the true vastness of space and everything out there. Do you enjoy stargazing and looking up at the sky? Let me know. A good segue away from camping may have been stargazing, although I do feel like stargazing is perfect for camping, but a good segue away might be a good hike. You don't need to go camping to have a good hike. It doesn't need to be the big production, it doesn't need to be a lot of preparing and worrying about food and water although for a solid hike you always should have I feel like a bit of food and water to be considerate of but a great summer activity to me is going for a hike not just a simple walk but a hike it's a destination experience it's getting out it's still going away or traveling outside of town or outside of the city it's a trek it's going away but not the endeavor that camping is And it can be something that's a solitary reflective experience or something that just like camping or a cookout you would do with friends. But I think the hallmarks of a good hike are almost like a mini version of camping of having uh, a separation from you know, being at home and going somewhere else of having a little bit of preparation, you know, having a canteen of water making sure that you have a sandwich or trail mix and maybe having some of the right gear in addition to that like a flashlight if you think it's going to go for a while or a windbreaker if you think it's going to get cold or wet The best hikes have built into them, to me, a bit of a narrative. A lot of popular trails are loop trails. And still others are often destination and return trails. But in every case the experience has a kind of baked in narrative flow and i love that about the experience of the hike that you set out from somewhere and the the first few minutes of a hike are some of my favorite because it it's just now beginning. It was anticipated until now. There were plans in place, preparations were made, but there's a moment where you step onto the trailhead and you begin walking and in the first few minutes Along the trail, you can almost feel how your mind begins to detach from other things and start to fit into hiking mode. To begin to sort of, your, your perception begins to open up to nature and the environment around you you become more hyper aware of smaller details in your environment and less aware of macro concepts that were maybe weighing you down before or bearing on you before or maybe what i mean is micro concepts i'm not the most philosophical or frequent hiker but I truly appreciate the sort of head change that comes with going on the hike and these first moments of the hike are one of my favorite points especially because it's not completely obvious you know the hike has a destination. The hike has a point beyond exercise most of the time. There's usually a vista or something to see or visit or appreciate along the way. So the outset itself isn't exactly a draw And I don't know if I'll spend a ton of time thinking about it, maybe thinking about it between now and the next time we meet of what other experiences within experiences we treasure without immediately thinking of those things when we talk about them, or remember them, or recommend them for example, I don't think that I would ever, or have ever, recommended a hike to somebody because of how good the first five minutes of the hike were you know, usually you're there to see a view at the top of a mountain or to see an animal, or a river, or, I don't know, a building, a temple. All kinds of things can be part of a hike. A grove of redwood trees. So you wouldn't often say that the the draw, or a draw, is the beginning Perhaps in part because it's not a feature, it's just something that happens mentally and maybe it only happens to me or maybe it only happens for some of us. In any case, it's also important to note that the follow-up to that beginning is the state of detachment that you might naturally come into along the hike where you're sort of more sensory and more introspect than you are analytic it may depend on the type of hike you're on or the party that you keep while you hike some hikes can be extremely social and I think that is a good thing a social hike with friends to appreciate things and talk about things and wander around together is a nice thing. But also a hike, um, especially with a hiking partner or two, where there are allowed silences, where sometimes you're just getting the hike done. I feel like that to me might be the ideal state of a hike is one that is not perpetually social but one that has the benefit of having social moments whether you stop to admire a view or take a water break or a lunch break you'll inevitably be taking a break at whatever the supposed destination for the hike would be but the in-between spaces, the time to reflect and be detached I think is something that sells it for me I also like it that a hike can be challenging That there can be something that is, uh, that wears you down a little bit. It's the heat, it's the elevation, it's the changes in heat and elevation. I'm sure there are plenty of debates out there about what makes a hike a hike, but I definitely tend to think that for me to want to call it a hike there ought to be some challenge, some difficulty involved and that's part of what I think for many people makes it so enjoyable is that there is an effort and what comes out of it is enriching emotionally spiritually you can be drained and that also has the upside of setting you up for what follows the hike if you're camping that might be the 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 cookout that might be dinner but in any case a good hike is a truly great thing and Summertime is a good time for it. What kind of hikes do you like to go on? Let me know. Okay, so those are some good Summertime activities and I know that I have not even gotten to all of my favorite summer activities, which makes me think that I may need to return to this roundup which definitely makes me somewhat concerned that this could be going in the direction of my success with vegetables I know But I think that we might both agree that perhaps there are a handful of other great summer activities that I have not even mentioned. And I say this knowingly because I am a lifetime lover and aficionado of roller coasters and I haven't even brought that up. So perhaps We can return to this before the summer series is up, maybe for the next episode or the episode after that. In the meantime, if there are some summer activities that you feel strongly about, make sure to let me know. And here's where we'll leave it for this episode. I hope you have been thoroughly rambled to rest and are not listening to what I am saying right now. However, if for some reason you are conscious at this time, I will leave you with these parting words. Zany. Arrange. Rampant Careful Abaft Thing Guiltless Aware Phobic and Railway. Thank you again. I am your host, Ryan. Music has been by Disparition. And I'll see you in the next episode.